Welcome to episode 249 of the Outback Mind podcast. Thanks so much for joining in uh, now today. Uh, very blessed to have the former Tasmanian Premier Peter Gutman along for a chat. Uh, Peter um, was the Treasurer of Tasmania for quite a while and become Premier, um, was also um, a Shadow Minister for, for quite some time. I think he joined Parliament in the uh, early 2000s and um, basically um, retired uh, a couple of years ago um, in amongst COVID. But um, more importantly, Peter sort of realised, uh, you know, that, that his work was consuming him and um, his family weren't, weren't seeing him much. He was away from home quite a bit, um, which I'm sure a lot of guys listening to this will be able to uh, empathise with. Uh, and um, he realised that he needed to change priorities. So, you know, to Peter's credit, he um, he basically turned his back on a, on a lucrative career and um, certainly, um, you know, found purpose in other areas now. And uh, he's really uh, passionate about advocating for men's health and men's mental health. So we're going to have a good chat about that today and where things are taking him as an individual moving forward and some of the strategies that he's used in the past to be able to, you know, stay balanced and mentally well. And I think, um, you know, from the conversation today, we should be able to get a lot of insight into uh, into a gentleman, you know, who was driven professionally that uh, has been able to move away from that and, um, you know, prioritise things. Uh, you know, as I always say, life's very short and if we don't sort of find um, that balance, then all of a sudden we can trip ourselves up. So I'm sure you're going to enjoy the chat. Um, really uh, be grateful for you to have a look at the documentary we just released called Healing Men's Minds. Uh, we've been showing it around central Queensland and, and throughout Queensland um, over the last month or two. It's been really well received and really successful and popular. It's creating great conversations um, around men's mental health and what we can do better to be able to, you know, gain and maintain good mental health. And that's really what it's all about, prevention, uh, I believe. So um, if you want to jump on the website and maybe reach out to us, uh, if you'd like to maybe get a, a screening in your workplace or your club, uh, be really grateful. Just uh, email support at backmind.org.au. Alrighty, uh, appreciate your feedback on this conversation with Pete and I uh, hope you enjoy the chat. G'day, Peter. Um, how are you? Oh, mate, really grateful for you uh, for joining me on, on this uh, on this chat today. I know you're down there in Tassie, and, um, uh, yeah, I've sort of followed your journey um, from my time down there, and, uh, yeah, mate, I'm sure we're going to have a good uh, good yarn, so I really appreciate your time. Uh, no problem at all. I'm really looking forward to it. Now, tell me, uh, I'm curious about a young Peter. I know you were born in 64, and you remember the phones with cords on them like I do, but... Um, what was like life growing up? Life like growing up for you? Were you born in, and raised in Lonnie or the northwest coast or somewhere? Uh, look, I was raised here. Um, I was actually born in England. My father's uh, a Yugoslav. He was a, a refugee after the Second World War. His family were. He went to Britain as a teenager and um, met my mum. And then they had three kids in very quick succession back then. In fact, um, there's only eleven months between myself, my elder sister and my younger brother mm. and they jumped on a ship in 1969 mm. to um when i was four to come out to uh, uh tasmania for a better life mm, amazing mate what was it like for you you may not remember too much about it then but um growing up in tassie and the northwest coast would have been a pretty uh, pretty different world back in those days uh look it was i actually i grew up in the northeast in a place called um uh, Nunamara. Yep. My parents had a, a small farm. Uh, my dad was a, was a weaver um, in the north of England. That was the trade he had. And so as a 10, he was whilst a Yugoslav, a 10-pound pom, 
came out to work in one of the um, uh, industrial weaving mills here in Launceston. And you know, I watched, you know, my old man, he, he worked, he did anything he possibly could. In fact, I, I don't think I ever saw a day that he didn't work. Um, mm. we ended up having, they ended up having a pretty big family. Um, there were six of us uh, kids. Uh, and, you know, we lived in a two-bedroom house and a little farm. Mm. And um, our beds were lined up a little bit like the Waltons. Um, <laughs> we had to actually climb, you know, climbing over the end of it because um, there was no, no more room in the bedroom. But, look, it was good. Um, I went to a, a very small school. We had uh, 56 kids in it. Um, it's now, now closed. But, you know, it was very um, – it was a tight-knit little community and uh yeah life on the farm was good um you know mum and dad uh, as i say they worked really hard and you know they took the view that you know they'd come here for a reason that was they they wanted to give their kids a, a better opportunity than what they thought was available in europe at the time mm. and um and so they worked their uh, their fingers to the bone to do it mm, amazing mate so you've got the grassroots, um, you know, sort of uh, hard work and blue collar mindset pretty much from day one. Yeah, well, look, it's interesting. When I, one of my my biggest disappointments for my my old man was that I, I never went on the traditional schooling journey. I left school when I was fifteen. In fact, I'm the only member of my uh, uh, sibling cohort uh, not to have followed the traditional path and got a university degree. Mm. Um, yeah, when I was, we lived on this little farm and my my main interest when I was a young man or a boy was football mm. and had this dream of, um, of uh, playing what was in VFL or, or now AFL. And so as soon as I could get off the farm and, and live in Launceston, which was near the football club, I did. So at 15, I left school. 16, I took on an apprenticeship and um, for the first four working years of my life, I, I did uh, an electrical apprenticeship mm. and that... Uh, stood me in really good stead. I must admit, I only worked for three months as an electrician, though. Um, I I'd, uh, was pretty good with maths, and so the, my boss at the time had got me back into electronics and engineering in my second year, and I, uh, I went on to study electrical engineering shortly after that. Mm, true. So you got a qualification in that? Well, no, actually, funnily enough, um, I was recruited by the Swan District's footy club. Um, <laughs> the waffle was pretty strong back in the 80s and there was no um, no AFL then. And so they took uh, three Tasmanian kids, I would have been 19 or 20, um, when I went to play in the waffle. And while I was over there, I was studying engineering. Then I got recruited out of um, uh, what was then an Institute of Technology, I think, um, by a large insurance company. And I started work in insurance and I worked in financial services for the better part of my life until I entered the um, parliament. Jeez, mm, here you go, mate. I never knew that. That's, uh, well, to come from Newnamara to, 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 to that is uh, pretty amazing. I know Newnamara. I've done a few projects around that way. And, yeah, mate, uh, it's, it's incredible to hear the, um, you know, the pathway you've taken. And I guess a lot of people that get into politics have had a university degree and, and that type, you know, that type of upbringing where it's been promoted. But you've sort of done it from the grassroots school of hard knocks, I guess, all the way through. Yeah, look, it's, look, opportunities are a wonderful thing and you've got to grab them when you get the chance. And yeah, when I when I went to Perth, um, yeah, and that was fantastic. In fact, that probably shaped me to enter the parliament. Um, along with uh, another experience, I had a few years later. Um, 
So it was interesting. Tassie in the 1980s was um, losing more people than it was keeping. Mm. Most young people were, as soon as they could, they were getting off the island to find work and opportunity elsewhere. And mm. the thing I noticed about Perth was that, you know, the conversations that you'd have when you're having a coffee or back then as a young man, um, more likely a beer, weren't about what the problems were uh, with the place. It was about what the opportunity was. Mm. And they were conversations that you never had in Tasmania. Yes. And, you know, when I came back to Tassie, in the 1990s, and I took on the uh, regional manager, we'll call it the state manager's role for a large insurance company here. Um, we were going through the recession that we had to have and things were pretty tough in Tassie. Uh, again, nothing had really changed. Um, and a few years later, I had the benefit of going to work in Europe. I worked in Ireland uh, as a manager with an insurance company there. And Ireland was going through the uh, the Celtic Tiger explosion regarding their economy. And, you know, again, the, the poorest people in, in Europe, um, the beggars of Europe, of, um, Europe, as they were called, the Irish at the time, had the fastest growing economy. They were optimistic. Um, and again, the conversations in Ireland were about what was possible and uh, not so much what was wrong with the place. Mm. And that, when I got back to Tassie a couple of years later, um, and uh, we ended up um, buying a hotel down here. And my wife and I came back from Europe. Um, we were uh, at Bridport on the northeast coast, which you might be aware yeah, of. Um, yep. Lovely little seaside town. And my next posting um, in the year 2000 in insurance was to go and work with the Bank of Kuwait. Mm. And while we, were in, while we were in Bridport at Christmas, I'm having a couple of weeks break, um, we got a phone call from a recruitment company to say that uh, all hires had been put on hold um, the one of the nephews had overthrown his uncle, who was the chair of the bank, and uh, they weren't um, they weren't going to carry on with um, any new hires. So while we were there in Bridport, we stumbled across a pub, and we decided that we'd make a career change. So my wife and I bought a pub, went back to to um, Ireland, worked out the rest of my contract, came back and became publicans. Jeez. And that's a that's an interesting life. Oh, no doubt, mate. Yeah, particularly in yeah. a place like that, that's for sure, where there's blokes, uh, fishermen and that sort of thing, I, I would have thought. Yeah, and look, and it's interesting. You see, especially in a small town, you see the best of people and you see the worst of people, unfortunately, um, when you're running a hotel. But what was interesting about Tassie then, that was about, must have been around the year 2000, um, you know, Tassie was still a laggard as far as its financial um, and economic circumstances were concerned. We still had really high unemployment, um, lack of opportunity. And uh, because I'd seen what had happened in Perth and what had, what had ha happened in Ireland, we had a strong economy. I got really motivated um, and decided to stand for politics. I was mm. fortunate enough to get elected um, the first time I ran. Jeez, mm. mate. <clears throat> Incredible. And that was, what, 2002? It was, yeah. And I know you and I had the chat um, uh, originally back in the day, uh, politicians had, uh, you know, uh, the ability to be able to access a pension for life and that was sort of dissolved when you come in, is that right? Yeah, that's right. Look, I went into, into it with my eyes open. In fact, um, the cohort of 2002, there was um, uh, the current Premier, Jeremy Rockliffe, um, who took over from me, myself, um, as the former Premier and then... The Premier before that was a guy called Will Hodgman, whose old man was Michael Hodgman, who's mm. a well-known federal and state politician. Yeah. And um, the three of us got elected in 2002 together, and we knew um, we were in our mid-30s then. They were, they were a couple of years younger than me, the other two. Um, 
but we knew that at uh, the end of our political career that um, there'd be no pension. Um, you know, we were treated the same as every, everybody else, which we, and I must admit, I still think is fair. Um, and so, you know, we, we entered politics and, uh, and yeah, just worked like mad to try and change the dial a little bit. I observed it, mate, and I'm, I'm really grateful, um, you know, to, to, to be there around that time. And I, I was really excited uh, to move to Tassie because I could see something happening and I could see some changes. I did see a lot of false starts too, you know. Um, I loved the uh, the a- AFL, um, you know, introduction there. I loved the Tasmanian Devils, um, you know, and what that stood for. Uh, and I, I just saw some tremendous change. You know, things sort of hit the skids in the late, um, you know, 2008, 2009. But then there was a major resurgence sort of around 2015, 2015 and beyond. And, um, yeah, I'd just like you to talk us through, um, you know, some of the things that you learned early and, you know, was it quite ruthless um, as a politician, um, you know, with someone that hadn't had any experience, I suppose? Yeah, look, it's the early, look, the early days were tough. When we, um, when we went into the parliament, um, you know, there were only a uh, little more than a handful of Liberal members of parliament. Um, and the, the three of us, especially the three new, uh, new guys, in, um, we're sort of middle of the road in terms of our, our philosophies. Um, you know, we're not, not hard right, not conservative. Um, you know, if anything, we're probably economically conservative, but um, socially progressive. And, you know, in Tasmania, that's, um, uh, that suits, I think, the Tasmanian um, psyche, to be honest. Um, and so we worked hard. We, uh, we had a recession down here in 2010, um, and we'd... Uh, that was an election that we were supposed to win. In fact, we, um, we ended up, it was a, a dead heat draw, and we decided that um, that we wouldn't govern um, with a minor party. And so, you know, in effect, um, we turned down government in 2010. And I must admit, I was, that was, that was not, I won't say a tough time, but it was a big decision that we all made. We, we felt that what we wanted to do was be able to have a government that could make change and, um, and bring about... Um, you know, some of the, the implementation of some of the, the good things that we've seen now. So we went back into opposition for four years. It's interesting. It, uh, it's the closest I've been to being depressed at that time. Um, I, I was just completely lost post that um, 2010 loss. And a mate of mine said, look, why don't we run a marathon? Hmm. And so I actually... Um, <laughs> I actually started, we, um, we set ourselves with a nine-month goal to run uh, Melbourne Marathon, which I think is run in October most years, and we got ourselves so fit by the middle of the year that we decided that we would run the Gold Coast Marathon, which is normally run in the middle of the year, yeah. and we got, uh, got into that and got through that, um, so that, um, from a, you know, in terms of fitness, that, that really helped having that, um, that structured uh, training process um, and... Uh, so that was good, but then you know, we came to government in 2014 and um, Will Hodgman became Premier, Jeremy Rockcliffe became Deputy Premier and I became the Treasurer. And then we set about implementing you know, the things that we wanted to do and we were fortunate enough that at that time there were things like Mona, um, which became a, an overnight sensation. Um, uh, you know, we were able to build a pretty reasonable economy and also, you know, straighten up the, the state's finances. Mm, yeah, mate. Yeah, geez, I, I tell you, <clears throat> you know, you, you need to be proud of yourself for that and also to have those guys around you. But, um, 
Certainly, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's progressed significantly since then. Um, you know, it's been eight years, or I suppose eight or nine years, but um, uh, there was, um, yeah, uh, some, some major insight there with regards to, you know, getting things on track and keeping them on track. And, you know, I, I think it was it's very valuable to hear a bit more about that that discipline and that self-routine that you experienced when you did that marathon because it actually got you out of your mind. And I think um, depression is very, um, you know, hard to hit a moving target. So if you're actually like uh, moving, you know, when you're doing something which has um, got a goal, then maybe your thoughts aren't going as, uh, as deep as what they possibly once would. No, look, and you're, you're absolutely right. It's interesting. Like I've always, I've found throughout my life, like I was disciplined as a footballer, um, and you know, when I look back, I look back on on those years with great fondness. I was happy and I was confident. Um, when I stopped playing football, uh, I studied martial arts for more than a dozen years, um, mm-hmm. and you know, again, that gave me a structure, and I was fit and I was healthy. Um, that marathon um, running. Um, which actually actually led to me damaging an Achilles a couple of years later. So I'd, I'd say to anyone, just be mindful that um, you build up to them slowly. Um, but having that the opportunity to exercise um, and just have your body move is so important to your overall well-being. Um, you know, and I found um, right throughout my life that uh, you know those people that you know, I look up to, those people that um, that I would talk to as um, uh, as mentors. You know, generally speaking, uh, with, with, um, without exception, uh, they all have a routine that includes, you know, some exercise and importantly some me time. Mm, yep. And, you know, I, I learned that, that early in the piece as um, I was growing up and it, it stood me in good stead. You know, and it's something that, um, you know, I'm working pretty hard on at the moment. Yes, and, um, yeah, I, I, I think that's, that's great. And I know... Um, We'll sort of go go ahead a bit quickly here, but I know you sort of retired from politics, um, uh, you know, a few years later after you become premier and so forth. But but that was pretty much due to family reasons, and obviously, you know, prioritizing prioritizing yourself. But you know, I've been in that situation too, where you get comfortable with the the financial outcomes that you're achieving, uh, and you know, you get into a bit of a a routine and um, and that with um, with your role, but um, sometimes there's so much that's more important than, than 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 that, and that attachment can really cause suffering if we're not aware of it. But you know, I know you you spoke to me about your decision and um, how that sort of come about. Could you talk us through that a little bit? Oh, look, certainly. Um, it's interesting in life. One of the things you've got to be aware of is um, is the law of accretion, if I can call it that. Um, and when you first start out working, you know, there's so much time that you work, and then you know, if you're fortunate and you've worked hard and um, opportunities presented, you'll get a bigger job uh, and you continue to work. And likewise, through your life, you gradually you you accrete um, more time in in the professional side of your life. And what I found when I entered politics, my wife and I were well aware that you know I'd need to spend maybe 15 weeks away at a minimum because that was the sitting period for the Tasmanian Parliament in Hobart. Um, then I became a shadow minister and that meant I had to spend about 20 weeks away. Um, became a shadow treasurer, that was you know, 30 weeks of the, the year away. Then I became a minister and, um, and the treasurer and I was spending easily 35 to 38 weeks of the year away from my family. And then I became premier 
and COVID hit. And those last couple of years, I spent you know, the better part of 50 weeks of my life um, uh, in, in Hobart, um, trying to manage what was a, a pretty difficult um, set of circumstances for everyone concerned. Mm. And just before I stood down, and I had not, I was comfortable, my my wife and kids felt comfortable, like life was where it was at, and, you know, we hadn't noticed these changes as they were building, but I'd been an absent father for the better part of um, 15 years. Mm. And my daughter got COVID, and I'd been home on the Saturday night, and as was my norm, I was leaving, I left for Hobart the following Sunday morning. And when I got down to Hobart um, that night, um, Mandy rang me to say that um, Millie had symptoms, and uh, the next day she tested positive, and our Director of Public Health said, well, look, under the close contact rules, you were with her within a four-hour period of her testing or um, having symptoms, you're a close contact. You've got to go home for a week. And I remember driving back up the highway, um, and I rang Mandy to say, look, I'm, I'm coming home, I'll be home for seven days. And she said, and it was interesting, just a throwaway comment at the time, she said, I wonder if we'll last seven days uh, together. Mm. Um, and I didn't even think anything about it. Well, on day five of us being in isolation, Amanda at breakfast that morning said, um, we're going to have a bottle of champagne tonight for the celebration. I said, well, why is that? And she said, well, five consecutive days in this house with me and the kids is the longest you've spent with us in two years. Mm. And there was like an epiphany. Um, I just, it just hit me and I thought, gee, no, I hadn't even realised that. Um, and so by that night, I'd actually made up my mind. I felt um, comfortable in the job that I'd done as Premier and Treasurer. I felt that the state, we'd opened up, that we were through the worst of COVID um, uh, and that, you know, I could I could step back and be satisfied that, you know, at a time when the state um, needed a government that could lead, you know, we'd led it and we'd we'd got through it. And so I said to um, my wife and children um, that, you know, I was going to leave politics and I was going to leave, leave very, very quickly. Now, I went back to Hobart the following Wednesday with the view that I'd be resigning on the Friday. And I said to my chief of staff, um, look, I'm done. Um, I need to focus on my, my family. My, my children at that time, one was 15, one was 17. Um, and both of them you know, are kind, considerate. Um, uh, you know, they set goals. They're good kids. Um, they get into all of the sort of trouble that um, uh, other kids do. But the one thing that I wanted to do was to have at least a couple of years with them and be in the house and be present before they, they reached full adulthood and left. And... So I said to my chief of staff, I'm done, I'm, um, I'm going to resign on Friday. And um, he's a very persuasive fellow and a good mate of mine. And um, he said, look, you've got a, there's a budget to be brought down in six weeks. You've got um, legislation in terms of climate, which we, we were really keen on introducing. Um, and uh, there's an AFL football team that you've just about got over the line. Um, uh, why don't you why don't you stay for another six months and then reconsider? And what we'll do is we'll, we'll work it out so that you can spend less time in the South and um, more time with the family. And so I got home on the Saturday and I said to my wife, look, I think I'm going to stay another six months. And we talked that through and said, you know, we'll make these changes and, uh, and we're all quite comfortable. Well, on the Sunday, 
that um, that week, it was 10 days after um, uh, we'd all been isolated for COVID, the Prime Minister was coming to Tasmania to announce um, a major state federal deal with um, the Marinus Link Cable, linking mm. Tasmania to the National Army Energy Grid. Mm. And I had to do a press conference up in on the northwest coast. So I'd left home at quarter past seven that morning. I was in my office um, in Launceston writing a speech and the phone rang. And Amanda said, um, look, you've got to get home. One of the children isn't well. Um, I called an ambulance and um, I'm not sure what's going on. So I raced home, ambulance was here and um, they bundled one of the kids up, up and uh, Amanda jumped into the um, ambulance with them. We got down to the hospital and um, at the hospital I said, look, Premier, unfortunately, um, your own COVID rules preclude two parents coming in. You've got to make a decision whether it's you or you want. Mm. I said, look, that's fine. I said, Mandy, Mandy can go in and I'll, um, I'll wait outside. So I went and sat in the car and spoke to Amanda and um, our know, child was slowly improving. I said, look, what I'll do, um, there's no point me sitting around. I'll go and do this press conference up on the northwest coast. And so I rang the Prime Minister and, um, and he was very understanding. There's no looking for it. Hadn't, if I couldn't attend, we would have worked circumstances out. He was very accommodating. So I said to him, look, I'll come and I'll sign. We'll do the press conference. I'm gone. I'm not doing any any of the meet and greets and politicking. So at that press conference, um, I'm standing there in the middle of it, and Aaron, you've seen a number of political press conferences that people have. You usually get five or ten minutes where you can talk about the things that you want to talk about, and then the press will move on to the issues of the day. And in the middle of this press conference, fortunately, there were no issues at the day for the Premier of Tasmania, but they had a few for the Prime Minister. And at that time, the Gladys Berejiklian texts had, um, had broken. Um, there were ministerial texts and a range of different comments about the Prime Minister. And so for 20 minutes, um, he was put through a cross-examination of that. And I'm standing there watching this occur, and I thought, what am I doing here? I've got a child that's um, ill in hospital. I don't know how they are. 24 hours ago, I was ready to leave the parliament because I wanted to spend more time with them. And now I'm standing here listening to this bullshit, pardon me. <laughs> yeah. And so I made my mind up on the spot in the middle of that press conference, got back in the car after it, rang me and said, that's it, tomorrow I'm gone, I'm done. Um, mm. I'll make the announcement tomorrow. And uh, to be honest, I haven't looked back. Jeez. So, so I, the gentleman in question, the chief of staff there, did he try and swing you around again or he just accepted it? just accepted that circumstances had changed mm, and amazing. the um and i have to say look i i i loved the job um i did um i really enjoyed being uh premier i enjoyed being being treasurer but i have to tell you i love my family more and to be able to step out and actually have time um with them has been a gift and it's a gift i've been able to grant myself because if i hadn't made that decision um i'd still be 45 to 50 weeks of the year mm. away from them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you don't get it back. And, um, yeah, geez, mate, I, I, I did a um, presentation the other day and I actually worked out that I'd probably spent more time in motel rooms and dongers in my own bed over the last sort of 30 years, you know. Um, yeah, and, you know, it is nice uh, in some ways, but certainly uh, you need to be able to have your own space and your own, you know, own, own people around you and, yeah, job's one thing, but there's a lot of things that get sacrificed along the way. And, you know, that's that's you know, really incredible to hear that, you know, those sorts of sacrifices were placed upon you and uh, they're obviously, obviously placed along, upon a lot of people in those political realms. But, um, 
Mate, I, I, you know, I really commend you for <clears throat> for that and, and having the courage to do so. And, uh, you know, I'd, I'd like to sort of step back a little bit and sort of look at um, some of the highlights, you know, over the journey, like you were probably nearly 20 years in politics, but what are some of the major wins that you had and some of the, I suppose, real changes that you saw, which, you know, really made you feel fulfilled? Look, um, one of the, when I left Tasmania as a, a young man in the mid-80s, and again, when we left in, in the 90s to go to Europe, um, the reason I was leaving was because I didn't feel that there was opportunity here in Tasmania. Mm. Um, what fills me with great pride is that, um, you know, for the last almost handful of years that, um, that I was either Premier or Treasurer, Tasmania had one of the strongest ground economies in the country, mm. and... Uh, we had one of the lowest unemployment rates, which meant that for, for people, there was opportunity here. For kids that um, you know, were my age when I left with 1920 back in the mid-'80s, um, they, they've now got a choice. They can, they can choose to go if they wish. They can choose to stay, or importantly, they can choose to come back because there's work here. Mm. Um, yeah, when I, when I was um, a young person, that wasn't the case. And, in fact... Um, you know, it's well documented, the fact that we, you know, Tasmania, in terms of um, its population, we've got one of the oldest populations um, in the country, uh, just simply because we've lost so many young people over the years that have left the state looking for opportunity because that opportunity wasn't here. So so that fills me with great pride that we were able to build a, a really strong economy. Um, when I look back at COVID, um, you know, we we were able to provide on a per capita basis the, the largest support package um, for, for uh, people in our state compared to any other state. Um, and we were able to do it with confidence because we had a really strong set of state finances at the time. In fact, we were the only state or territory in the country that held net cash and investments as opposed to net debt going into COVID. So, you know, just the, those common sense things that, you know, intuitively that, you know, you should save for a rainy day. Well, Tasmania had. And, you know, I, I held the levers on that term, that purse for, for eight years and we were in a really strong position when we went in. The other thing I like to think about is that the, the social changes. Um, you know, not everyone will, that's listening to this will agree with it, but I was, I was pleased that in Tasmania we were able to take a step forward in, in terms of um, voluntary assisted dying, euthanasia. Mm. Um you know, the, um, the changes that were made in terms of um, uh, our gay law reform here, um, the Relationship Act that we, um, we introduced, um, which was uh, led the country back in the early 2000s. So, so socially, we've moved forward. Um, economically, uh, we're in good shape. And importantly, and I, I can't leave out the footy team, so I'm a, mad, a passionate football follower, um, um, we are going to get our own AFL team. And whilst um, you know, the deal wasn't inked when I was there, um, the wheels were in motion and um, there's momentum now and we'll get our own AFL team and that will finally put Tasmania on the same footing as every other state in this federation will be treated equally. We'll have a side in the National League. Do you have any doubt it won't happen or it will happen? Oh, it'll happen. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's got it's gone too far. There's look, there's politics being played now, largely because of the stadium. Um, but it's interesting. You look at every stadium that's been built um, in this country and around the world, 
Um, the politics, stadium politics are always played. There are always choices that can be pointed to that the money might be better spent on. Um, what people uh, don't grasp or fail to grasp or ignore uh, willingly is the fact that, um, that a team um, with a stadium that's multi-purpose uh, is going to actually help our economy to grow mm. and that'll generate more revenues to spend on housing or health or education. Um, but it, it's important that what it says to young people in this state, um, I've, I've been really pleased with the Jack Jumpers um, mm. and the way that they've hit the um, National Basketball League. Um, young kids can now look at this and they know that as Tasmanians, they're going to get the same opportunity to play on that national stage as every other kid in the rest of this country, by the two territories. Mm. And, you know, I think the Northern Territory will, um, will get its own team um, in the next handful of years as well. Mm. And that'll be a fantastic thing. And so I think it's about pride, it's about building um, uh, civic ownership, and it's about treating states in a federation equally. Yes, yes. Oh, look, I... I certainly think it's tremendous. Um, as I mentioned before, the Devils was amazing. I thought when I was there, I couldn't wait to bloody go to games. And it actually gave a real um, sense of connection. Um, and, and the state to have its own team will be powerful because, you know, obviously a lot of people in the state will get behind it. And um, and the good things that will come from that are, are going to be significant. You know, I've got a 22-year-old and a 19-year-old uh, and if that AFL team was in, my young bloke wouldn't have gave football away, but he actually got lost, um, uh, you know, coming through because there was no real structure, you know. Um, and if there was a real um, uh, incentive there to be able to perform and, and reach those sorts of goals, then, you know, great. And um, I just think it gives um, a, little, a little bit of ownership to people and it gives them um, something which they can connect with, which will be good for their mental health. And um, it's an all-year thing, you know. You, you've got you know, your season and you've got all the things that go around it. And um, I just think, you know, that's where Tasmania was let down for a long time because, you know, in the 80s and so forth that you mentioned before, there was no real... Um, no, nothing really, you know, keeping people there, um, the forestry and things like that, but um, there wasn't much else. And um, I just think it's tremendous to see a state which is so beautiful and, you know, unique, being able to get the rewards that it deserves from that level, but also, you know, potentially for other people to go down and experience the natural assets and the gifts that are there, um, you know, is, is, is amazing. And, you know, you need to be really proud of, of the period that you've been able to, to sort of, you know, watch and observe that and, um, you know, be part of it all. And, you know, I'm excited to uh, to see it happen. Although, mind you, I'm not – I don't think I'll move back down because it might be a bit cold for me now, but I do <laughs> – <laughs> I do love it. I would have been able to ride my bike to the stadium, but anyway, it doesn't matter. Yeah, but no, look, look, Tassie at the moment is a vastly different place than the place that I grew up, um, yeah. you know, just in terms of the collective pride, um, the social cohesion that we saw during COVID, which um, you know, I, I was just so enormously proud of. You know, when Tassie needed you know, people to stand up, um, you know, Tasmanians held out their hand um, to each other, regardless of you know, race, regardless of religion, regardless of circumstance or background. Um, Tasmanians actually helped each other. Um, and, you know, I'm so incredibly proud proud of that. And then when you look at, um, you know, what the state's done over the last 100 years, and, 
you know, I, I take very little credit for this, but it's a fantastic achievement. That is, Tassie's got 100% green energy. Um, yeah. You know, other states are scrambling around trying to um, trying to work out what to do, and you know, we've got the, the hydro, which is just sensational. Um, uh, you know, for those that are interested in emissions, um, you know, Tassie, because of the carbon sink we've got with our trees, you know, is the only industrialised location on the planet that's already achieved net zero, which means that, you know, for young kids coming forward, um, those jobs, and they, there will be jobs in the wind farms and the, the smart advanced manufacturing, there are opportunities here in Tasmania that um, weren't available 20 years ago. Back then, yeah, I agree, no, it's, it's, it's exciting. Let's, uh, let's go into men's health a little bit. <clears throat> and um, oh, I moved to Tassie in 2003, and uh, that's when I become really curious about about men's health. Um, and I, I got knocked around myself because I was on call a lot, and you know I was I was I was out of whack. But I was also you know hiring guys and placing guys on job sites all throughout the state, and. I saw that we weren't doing men's health very well. Um, we weren't looking after people and we were still, you know, old thinking when it come to someone having something wrong, we'd, we'd, we'd criticise them or label them or judge them. And also at the same time, and you would have seen this, the Premier was Jim Bacon and um, Jim Bacon, um, you know, although mentally he had good health, he physically didn't have good health. And I think that was a consequence of his job. And I think uh, in my time, I saw a lot of guys, you know, in... Um, leadership roles that did have poor health um you know physical health and obviously um you know that might have um also affected things above the shoulders but um you know i think things have probably been improved a little bit there and you, you may have been amongst jim bacon and paul lennon and that but um yeah i just sort of didn't see them as being you know great role models for for other men uh, possibly and and you know the consequences that come from from having a job um, which uh, is very demanding and so forth, and what that can actually do to affect you. What What's your observation around that, like, and, and, and that sort of period? Yeah, look, it's, it is interesting. Um, you know, Tasmania, in terms of a lot of attitudes, if you go back um, a couple of decades ago, you know, Tasmania was probably five to ten years uh, behind um, in terms of a lot of social attitudes. Um, and... You know, especially in the in terms of men's health, and we've got a, you know, as you well know, a very dislocated community down here. You know, half, um, I think we've got um, you know, one of the smallest cohorts living uh, at, in a in a capital city, and then we've got the regional spread with the northwest coast, the west coast, the east, um, mm. and so a lot of people living in regional areas, and um, you know, there was very little support uh, for people then, and. You know, and in the main, you know, I grew up in a, you know, I guess in a family like um, you would have done at the end of the day, you know, the messenger, you just tough it out. Mm. Um, now, now um, it's really positive. In fact, I, I saw a, a post only in the last 24 hours from the Premier and um, ruled alive and well, mm. um, you know, reaching out and doing some, um, some work uh, in the regions. And it's really important, you know, uh, and I must admit, you know, one of the reasons I've, and I'm on a, a major get fit um, and uh, improve my wellbeing process at the moment, um, I've been staggered by the amount of people that um, I've known for 30 to 40 years that are now having hips done, knees mm, done, yeah. um, have got cardiovascular diseases, um, you know, that, have, uh, that are overweight. Um, and in fact, and it's interesting, um, you know, and in the main, 
um, that many of them um, you know, are suffering some uh, a slight level of obesity. Um, and at the end of the day, that has to play into um, the way that you view yourself, the way that you can a- a- approach life. Um, and it's so important that you take that time to build in, to put in place a sensible um, routine. You don't have to be a, a marathon runner, but put in place a sensible routine, but importantly, find that knee time. Um, you know, I was saying the other week, um, it's what, 168 hours in the week. Um, you know, I'm determined that at least seven of them, an hour a day, is going to be me time. Yes. And I've never felt better as a result. Mm, yeah, geez, Jim. Sorry, uh, Jim, Peter. Um, I, I think this is where we've got off track. You know, we've been... Um, We've been educated to support the economy primarily, and uh, a lot of us just stay connected to that, but we, we stay disconnected with ourselves. And for me, I had to get a real kick up the ass before I, I come to that decision, but I, I commit a couple of hours a day to my wellbeing, you know, and that, that's non-negotiable. Um, because if I do that, then everyone benefits, you know, not just me, but everyone benefits from it. But if I, if I don't, then, you know, I know, you know, the body doesn't work as well and the mind mightn't be as sharp and that type of thing. But if you look at the essence of humanology and what, um, what some of these ancient cultures were trying to teach us is, is pretty much just that. You've got to be able to do this work on yourself to get everything working properly. Otherwise, you do potentially seize up. And I just think in, in modern modern society, we've accepted it. You know, people as they age and they get older, they expect to, to have, you know, a hip replacement or a knee replacement or cancer or something go wrong. But if you can do things to support your well-being and eat properly and do things, you know, where you're working with the seasons and that type of thing, then you're actually empowering yourself rather than being disempowered. And uh, I just think that's the, uh, that's the new education we've got to try and help people work towards. Uh, because, yeah, the, the old way sort of isn't working and uh, I just think, um, yeah, the more we can actually create awareness around it and be able to give examples, you know, by someone like yourself, which is, you know, leading by example, I think is really, really important and, and, and critical because, yeah, I, I just don't think that we, we need to be dependent. We can be as independent as much as we like if we put the work in. Look, that's right. And it, um, yeah, and it's interesting. Um the first step is always the hardest, um, but once you've taken that first step, um, then it gets easier and easier. And you know, I've, in my life, um, you know, the philosophy I'm living by, like I, you know, it's pretty simple, really. Um, good nutrition, um, uh, get a reasonable amount of sleep, and you've got to be disciplined to um, to do that. You know, you've got to make sure that you're not caught up on Netflix or um, you know, going to sit up and watch the World Cup through the right through the <laughs> night. Um, you know. Yeah. But I, I try to get my seven to seven and a half hours um, every night. Um, uh, and, you know, with good nutrition, sleep, and then an exercise program, um, all the building blocks are there. Uh, and I, as I say, I, I'm 58 now. Um, I've lived two-thirds of my life. I know that. Um, the last third, I want to be the best third. Mm. And, you know, and for those people who are listening, like I'm, I'm working back working full-time again i've got um a range of different roles um uh but what i'm doing is making sure that i prioritize and uh i have that me time and uh i gotta tell you i know i'm more productive i know i'm a better father i know i'm a better husband um as a result 
Yes, yeah, that's right. And if that can be your baseline and you, you work your life around that, you know, that's, that's, the, that's the core of who you are. And if you can commit that, that one hour a day or whatever it is, you know, um, to yourself, I think that's really key. And, and you know, Pete, like, I, I didn't, I did the opposite and I'm sure you did and I'm sure plenty of blokes listening to this do, but let's get up, put the TV on, drink a coffee, get stuck into it, come home, you know, have a few beers, can't sleep and do it again. And, and yeah, I was in that loop for years, but that, that's all I knew, you know. I was just sort of disconnected from, from myself. But um, I think, yeah, you're right. It just takes the, um, the courage to, to, to not be in a hurry and uh, just one day at a time do some gradual things which can improve your, your well-being. And, and the, the biggest trap we fall into as guys is comparison as well we're always comparing ourselves to others or how we used to be and that sort of thing and just remember that 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 is there to protect you but also not to be you know too connected to that because if you're curious and you can start to you know see the subtle changes um that that happen every day then you free yourself up to, to to making those changes but if we shut ourselves down and we're judgmental um you know of ourselves and critical of ourselves and that's sort of a a trap that a lot of us you know pretty much fall in Look, that's right. And, um, you know, to some degree it can be a motivation to give you a, a push, but what you don't want to do is to get hung up on it. Um, mm. but I found, um, you know, uh, understanding the, the distinction between feeling good and being happy is really important. Mm. Um, and what I, no, what I mean by that, it's interesting, you know what the weather's like in Tasmania. Um, you know, Every morning, you know, my alarm goes off at six o'clock in the middle of winter. Um, you know, it is very tempting to stay buried under the covers. I can tell you, um, <laughs> rather than get out and um, and go for a walk or a, a, a jog um, first thing in the morning. Mm. And but that might make me feel good, but does it actually make me happy? No. Mm, mm. Getting out of bed and getting moving and actually, you know, attacking the day is what makes me happy. And so. You know, just uh, just thinking about that distinction in different parts of your life. It's, you know, alcohol's a prime example. You know, alcohol, drinking alcohol um, will make you feel good, um, but doesn't actually make you happy. Mm. And you need to, you know, think about that distinction. And as I say, there are a range of things that you can apply it to across your life. And and so, you know, I, I certainly don't live like a monk, um, but I live a pretty healthy, balanced life now, and I'm pleased that. You know, the last um, 12 months, um, you know, I've been able to take the time to actually put it in place. And as I say, an hour a day, geez, it, um, uh, everyone can find that. Yes, yeah, I agree. And that's right. And it's, it's committing to it and it's saying to yourself, okay, this is what I've got to do because it, it supports me. It gets my body moving. It gets the... The, the mind working better, all that type of stuff. And, and that's preventative maintenance, isn't it? You know, um, and as you said, like the, the colleagues that you have that are having all these issues, like, you know, if you're not going to pay now, um, you, you, you'll pay later unless you do the work. And I just think um, we've got to start to help more guys realise that they've got to invest in themselves and be able to do things which can support them. And, um, yeah, we, we've got a bit of work to do. Um, you look at the last... The last, you know, 100 years in Australia, we've had a lot of trauma, you know, a couple of world wars and things happen and things like that, and guys have been sort of, you know, disconnected. But I just think if we can work together with each other and start to support one another more and more, then we can start to empower people. And, 
Yeah, it's, it's really good to hear you say that, Pete, because, um, you know, lots of guys, when they retire, they fall off the perch. Yeah, and look, and you're right, and it's interesting. Um, you know, I, uh, the, the first six months after I stood down, um, uh, I did very little. In fact, I decided that I'd, um, I didn't want to think about what I'd do for work or um, uh, do too much at all, apart from put some structure in, into my life in terms of some training and making sure I was being as supportive as I could have um, and actually reintroducing myself to Mandy and the kids is probably, probably <laughs> yeah. and, and, and don't worry for anybody that's, uh, that listens to this that's retired and suddenly you've ended, you've got, you're spending more time at home, you, you need to realise early on that there are processes and systems that uh, the people have in their homes and, and when you're coming back into it, You've, you've got to fit in, you've got to um, yeah. got to understand those things. And so, look, you know, we certainly had our moments, but, um, you know, it's important because um, I, I found in that first uh, couple of months that, you know, a lot of people, you know, retired and having, you know, the, the odd cups of coffee and um, – but not doing a, a great deal more than that. Mm. Um, and what I, I, I want when I finally do stop and, um, and retire is to be, you know, fit enough, and healthy enough to go and do some of the things that I haven't been able to do, to go and walk Kakadu or, um, you know, spend some time um, doing some of the fantastic long walks that we've got here in Tasmania. Mm-hmm. Um, things that throughout my adult life, um, you know, it's too busy because I was working. Um, I don't want to get to retirement age and be too buggered to do that stuff. So I'm, I'm putting in place the foundation now that ensure that I can get that uh, that next 30 years is a good 30 years. Yeah, amazing, mate. And, yeah, it's it's, it's insurance. It is. The work you're doing is, is yeah, is insurance for later on. And um, I just think that's available to all of us, you know. With the men's circles we run, we have guys in their 70s and that come along and they're learning from the young fellas and they're starting on this pathway now of thinking, well, shit, you know, I can make some changes still and it's not too late and, for anyone listening to this, it's not too late, you know, whether you're a young fella or an old fella, just one step at a time and one one little, um, you know, one little achievement at a time can lead to big things. And, um, you know, that's that's a sort of um, coaching we're going to be able to, to provide to people in life because it's not just all about uh, our, our status and all those sorts of things. It's about, you know, being able to, to support one another. And I just think, you know, we have been really separated in... Um, in life and in modern life, but if we can actually work more together to support one another, then we, we're going to have better outcomes and everyone's going to benefit from that, you know. And um, I just think, yeah, you, you know, we're, we're having this conversation at the right moment in time because there is some shifts coming and I think the way we've lived life um, over the last few generations is probably going to change, you know, and um, it's exciting, Peter, you know. I just think, um, you know, everything happens for a reason and, you know, for you to make that decision, you could be still operating in that role, but, you know, there's, there's a lot more to come. So, you know, you really, really need to be proud of that and, um, you know, I'm, I'm grateful we've been able to have the conversation and people to listen to it here today and hopefully um, that helps a few people out there. Uh, look, it's been my pleasure to have the chat. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. No worries at all, mate. And, um, yeah, anyone that wants to reach out, um, you know, please email me and um, uh, certainly, um, yeah, look forward to having more chats in the future, Pete. So thank you. No, thanks very much, Aaron.